Hello, welcome back to One Mic Real Talk. We're back with a bang for 2022. We're going to start this year off with a very special episode. Gee Fred and Asaro interview the anti-apartheid legacy who are doing amazing work ensuring that the struggle of the anti-apartheid movement is remembered and we educate young people about what that struggle was and how it was eventually won. This is a really interesting episode, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that Art Against Knives are doing a crowdfunder and we need to raise a certain amount of money uh, in order to keep our spaces open. These spaces provide a safe environment for over 400 people a year to help them with their creativity, their ambition and to achieve the things they want to achieve. So please, if you know anyone that can donate any money, it would be greatly appreciated. The link is in the description of this podcast. Or you can just type in Space Hive Art Against Knives into Google and the crowdfunder will come up. We really appreciate any support. No amount is too little. And tell your friends, tell your grandmother. Enjoy the show. Yo guys, it's a soul first. I'm a co-host, DJ Fred. DJ Fred. DJ Fred. DJ Fred. Yo, it's all yo. And you're now locked in. The one mic real talk. One mic real talk. One mic real talk. You know what this is? One mic real talk. One mic real talk. Some of those schools didn't exist when I was young. So, yeah. So, why did you go back to school? Your parents just decided. Um, a lot of Nigerian um, children get shipped off yeah, for discipline reasons. It's like, all right. My dad's first son, so he was like to me. He wanted me to like lead the way. So, I, need, I don't know a lot about my own culture, my heritage. I just, oh, I'm, I'm his first son, how can I not know? I'm his first child in general. So he was like, it's better for me to go so I can understand more. And it was good. The next place I need to go at this age is South Africa. I want to learn more about yeah. my mum's side of the family. It's really interesting. Did you like Lagos? Um, some parts I didn't like that. The discipline from being in this country were like, I do it. I think, like, <laughs> I think it helps you as a person. Like, it does. Like, now it's made me more like reluctant to give up on things. Because there's so many times I wanted to give up call my dad, come get me, come get me, call my parents, come get me. And that wasn't an option. So it's made me like, <laughs> more like thinking, I can't give up because I never, I never had the chance to give up prior to this. So yeah. Help you the it does make you resilient. And it also, it also, does, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Desmond Tutu, who's a, he was a, he was a anti-apartheid activist. He was South African and he said that when he went to Nigeria, the thing that he really remembers is that black people were doing everything. And he says, you don't realize how in your mind that you're, for, for South African particularly, but for black British people and so on, is that you don't realize how 
amazing that is if you come from a different culture. He, got, he, got, he said, I grew to a great height. Black people, they were doctors, they were flying the planes, they were doing all of this. I do also love, you know. Like, I love like the clothing, like there's natural heritage. No one's really ashamed. Like, like at my school, we had like Heritage Day. So my, my school tries to conform to the British system, but not too much. So like, we, we come in our own native, native wear. And when I went in native, I thought it was so beautiful to see everyone in their own native, so proud, so confident. Like me, when I, when I want to go back, I'm going back to Nigeria in December. I want to go, I only really want to wear native because I think it's so beautiful. Like, it's being proud of who you are. That's what I really like about the native there. I really enjoyed it. But anyway, this is my co-host, Fred. Hello. Hello. Oh, you can, yeah. Hi. <laughs> my Hi. name... Hi there, my, my name is Guy Fred. Sorry, I'm late. I know it's not a good look. Should we put on speaker view so we can see a larger version of him? Fabulous. All right. Shall I start it, yeah? All right, cool. You're now locked in to One Might Road Talk with myself, DJ Fred, and... Sorry first. And today we have two... What words should we use to describe them? Very, very special guests. Right, two very, very, very special guests. Um... If you introduce yourself. Yep, I'm Leila Kogbara. And um, why am I special? Because I was in the anti-apartheid movement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on Zoom we have... Yeah, I'm Suresh Kamath. I also was involved with the anti-apartheid movement uh, yeah. from about 1972. And I'm still involved with an organisation called Action for Southern Africa, which is the successor organisation to the anti-apartheid movement. Nice, nice, nice. That's amazing. All right, cool. So let's start here. The first, <laughs> sorry, the first thing I want to know is what is the anti-apartheid movement? In case people don't know, when they're listening. You go. You start. Okay. Suresh. Um, the anti-apartheid movement was basically, as the name implies, was an organisation that was dedicated to getting rid of apartheid, um, and uh, apartheid was a system that existed in South Africa. Uh, specifically, it was an institutionalized racism. I know we talk about institutionalized racism these days, but in terms of South Africa, the way it was institutionalized was by a whole series of laws that segregated the races, with the white people being in charge, even though they were the minority, and they, from... Um, really from pre-colonial, from colonial days rather, from when, whenever the British took over, um, they, um, they wanted the white uh, colonialists wanted to rule South Africa and subjugate the black uh, people who lived there. Um, but specifically from about 1948, um, the, the white government introduced a series of laws which totally segregated society into different races, Spe more specifically um, white race, um, Indian race, uh, black people, Africans, and what they called coloreds, who were people of mixed, mixed race. And the job you could do, where you could live, what school you could go to, which university you went to, who you could marry, who you could mix with, where you could live was decided by your race. So, you know, the anti-apartheid movement was an organization in Britain uh, which campaigned against 
institutionalized racism, apartheid in South Africa. Man. And should I, if, if I just, uh, the other thing with apartheid, apart as well as, so it wasn't just that people were separated, they were, but it was organized so that um, black people, or non-white people generally, but mainly black, main, the majority of them were black, um, you, apart, as well as you couldn't marry, it was against the law to marry between races. So people got imprisoned, they got beaten up, they had inferior education on purpose. They had education that would make them into that would that was for people to be servants rather than education that could, for example, get you to do what you wanted to do. And so it was really fierce, so that people actually got put in prison and sh- killed and shot and so on. So it was quite it was violent as well as anything else in South Africa. And some of the things which seem ridiculous that they used to do, like. Um, they had a hair test, for example, whereby to decide whether if somebody they put a pencil in your hair to see how black you were, for example, wow. and that kind of thing. There were some really things which seem really ridiculous to that would seem utterly ridiculous. But they were ridiculous, and that's the kind of thing they did. It was very very petty, actually, in many ways. So even you couldn't even sit on the same park bench. Yeah, I heard about that. Know, as, as a, a white people could not, black people could not sit on a park bench with white people. They had to have passes to move around, so you couldn't go from, say, Finchley to Islington without a pass if you were black. And that pass would normally be only because you had a permission to work there. You couldn't just go there because you wanted to go. And th- meanwhile, it was their country, and they were in the majority. And so it was in the 18th century that the Dutch and then followed by the British basically landed there because they had gold and diamonds. And, and, it, yeah. and is that when the apartheid started? No, apartheid formally started in, the 40s. in 1948, but the racism started from the colonial way times before. when they started trying to take the land. And in a way, something that's quite interesting and I think re- still relevant today is you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why would anybody do this? And it is it was about resources it was about gold it was about diamonds and how and so it started it it formally started in the 40s and when did it like like proper end yeah it ended in 1994 so that was when so Suresh joined anti-apartheid movement in the 70s I I only joined in 19 in uh when did I join 1986 I joined um so it was, but apart, anti-apartheid movement started in like 1959. 1959, the the, the UK one, the, the one UK that. One. Yeah. And how, how old are you when you when you when you both joined? In seventy two, basically seventy two. Yeah, how old yeah. are you? I, I, I was um, I was about nineteen. I'm sixty eight now. Um, so that was nearly fifty years ago, um, when I was at university. And I was, um, I'm going to be sixty. So I was, what, how old was I, 1986? So you're going to be 60 this year? 20-something. I'm going to be 60 next week. Next week? <laughs> I'm so not having a party because of the COVID, though. I think you were 25, if I'm right. Yeah, something like that, yes. The so serious, you so. The master's serious, master's serious. Yeah, so, um, so 19 and 25. Now, 19 is really young to... Yeah, I want to ask. To, yeah, I want to ask, like... No, 19 is not far from man and Fred's age. Like, yeah. we're 17. What type of mindset were you in to see something that you wanted, like to achieve and better the world for, and take that step for it? 
That's like a very mature thing to do at such a young age. It didn't seem like that at the time. I mean, when I was 19, I wanted to change the world. I still want to change the world, um, but in perhaps slightly different ways. There are more in, different campaigns now that we, we need to take on. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I'd been a little bit of a political activist in my late teens. Um, I campaigned for the Labour Party with a friend of mine in my local area. Um, when I was went to university, I went to study engineering, uh, but I was politically aware, I think, um, and uh, and I met someone at university um, who became a, a good friend of mine, whose mother had married um, what in those days was called a Cape Coloured man, who was involved with the African National Congress. And the African National Congress is the uh, organization to which Nelson Mandela became the president. Uh, and they were the main organization that was leading the resistance against the apartheid regime. So um, my friend, um, as I said, he, he was um, his mother um, and his, his step stepfather was a colored man. And uh, when I met him, um, he explained to me what the system was in South Africa. And I just felt this was so wrong. Um, you know, how could you have a society which was so segregated? I mean, I went to university where there were people from all over the world. And I thought that was, you know, the right thing. You know, uh, but kids of my age had to go to different universities because of their race. I thought that was wrong. And also... Um, as Chitra, has, uh, sorry, as uh, Leila has explained, um, Britain was central to how the apartheid regime was set up. And, you know, we had a lot, there are a lot of uh, people from uh, Britain who had uh, relatives, so what they call kith and kin out in South Africa. Um, and there was actually <laughs> quite a lot of support for South Africa within the society here. Um, and I felt it was important that we should campaign against what was happening in, in the apartheid regime and that Britain should help to bring about change in South Africa. So then how, how old are you when you actually went to South Africa? Then? Like... Well, I, I didn't go to South Africa until after the apartheid regime um, changed, until we became a more democratic country. Uh, the first time I went to South Africa was 1976 uh, because we boycotted South Africa. I mean, our campaigns were to try to stop people from buying goods from South Africa, from visiting South Africa. We wanted to cut off the apartheid regime so that we weakened the apartheid regime. You mean 1996, Sir, you went? 1996. Sorry, 19, 1996, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. After, yeah. I mean, the first democratic re uh, election was in 1994. So the first time I went was uh, as part of a delegation uh, in about 1996. I think it. So, so some people went because um, from here who were anti apartheid, but very few. So that they went for a particular purpose. And they there's a group of people that now they, there's a book written about them called London Recruits. So there were some young Brits that did go to to 
effectively support the struggle and they they had think they used to smuggle in arms to support the African National Congress. So one person that we know, Stuart, for example, how old was Stuart at the time? Probably 19, 20. And he was recruited here and went to, to smuggle arms in, on, in a truck. And they had the false bottom driving through um, from, I can't remember whether it was Botswana or somewhere, to, into South Africa to support. And then other people would do things like they had leaflet bombs that they would drop, yeah. just leaflets, and they would, and so on. So there were some British anti-apartheid activists that went there to support the African National Congress. But the general rule was that we are, one of our campaigns was nobody should visit South Africa, nobody should allow, should go there, no South Africans should be, come here, there should be no music exchange, no musicians, no sports with South Africa. So that was called the boycott movement, basically. So that was boycotting. So we the, the whole thing that anti, the part, anti-apartheid movement did, there was a big thing on boycotting South African um, fruit, vegetables, wine, tourism, and sport, and everything. Lots and lots of that. That was the main thing that we, we as activists did, was boycotting. And we did other things as well, but that was one of the big things. So that they couldn't, like... Gain anything from yeah. the UK? We're tra- we were trying to um, um, di- disrupt the the economy. Yeah. So basically, like I said before, we'll cut them off economically. Yeah, that's so, what you're so to do. Yeah, exactly. Because, like I said before, people have gone in there and they're there to try and make a profit. So they've got the diamond, they've got the goals, they set themselves up, and they then treat the na- na- the people who are there, the natives of the land, like slaves in their own country, and force them to work on farms in mines so on so the idea of the boycott was to try and hurt the regime the regime so it wouldn't be worth their while you know make it doing all of that to not even succeed there exactly criteria yeah man that was that was the that was what we were trying to do and it and it, it worked so speaking of young people one of the most successful campaigns was the boycott of barclays bank at the time because barclays bank had as did other banks, to be fair, had um, uh, offices and they operated in South Africa. Shell, as in Shell Petrol and so on, they operated in South Africa. So we boycotted Barclays, boycotted Shell Petrol Station. We used to, where I was active in London, South London, we had this beautiful, huge banner and we used to stand outside the Shell Station on the Walworth Road and just like Shell fuels apartheid, boycott shell and we used to stop people going to buy shell petrol for example but the barclays um uh boycott was successful because the students the british students boycotted barclays and in the end forced barclays to leave south africa barclays had to leave south africa because of all the british people and mainly the students boycotted the bank and it was like no longer it's not worth it anymore you can't make a profit now in in britain say so it's like not worth it so you have you leave mm-hmm. and that was the that was the main thing wow i think what, what you've got to understand is that um within south africa, south africa itself every form of resistance by the people who wanted to make south africa a democratic country every form of resistance was uh put down by the the apartheid regime 
And as uh, Chit uh, as uh, Leila mentioned earlier, it wasn't just by imprisoning people. I mean, people were hanged. Students who demonstrated in, um, against the the regime were shot in the street. You know, when you know you're used to having student demonstrations. This we're used to having student demonstrations in this country, but we don't expect the police to shoot them. Dead. And in 1976, in Soweto, when a group of students demonstrated against uh, their education system, their inferior education system, the apartheid regime, uh, the police and the soldiers killed many of them. And some of them were like really young. So one of the most famous pictures that made people wake up and see that apartheid was a problem. Because a lot of people in this country was like, what's the problem? Yeah. You know, um, was the uh, was the shooting and the murder of um, Hector Peterson. He was 14. Mm. And the, the cameraman took a picture of this, of his of him being carried by his friend. And his friend was running with Hector dead, 14-year-old child. And that was one of the things that made people think, oh, my goodness, no, no, this doesn't look right. But so, yeah. So you see before that, yeah, do you think people didn't see it as such a bad problem because, like, they didn't know maybe enough information or just because they were just, like, they were just genuinely just weren't sensitised to what they were hearing? Because nowadays, things happen all over the world, yeah? I can go on my, I can go on my phone and see, what, like, what's going on if I really want to do research and or even, even if I don't go on my way to do research, it will, it will come on through social media and stuff like that, but I can imagine in 76, there was probably, there's probably obviously still a way to find out what's going on, but it probably wasn't as easy. So why do you think people yeah. didn't really... I mean, you know, in 76, uh, I mean, we used to, there were, there were what, four or five channels on television? Um, and so most people would watch one or other of the BBC or ITV news. Um, and that was broadcast, the, you know, the horrific pictures, I think, Leila, you may remember as well, horrific pictures of uh, students being shot uh, by South African soldiers. We saw that on the 10 o'clock news. Um, so people, we were getting information. Of course, we don't get it instantly like we do today, as you know, as you just said. Um, but we did, we did get information and um, particularly from television. So why do you think people um, didn't... I think people were yeah. just much more racist. I mean, even in, even in the UK, very, yes, they were totally racist in those days. It was normal to be called the N word on the street in London as well. Yes, it was normal. Wow, it was normal. So, as certainly when I was a child, and I think it's easy to forget that that was like how what things were like. People would call you an N word. It was it was okay to discriminate against black people or, or or Asian people, and so and so there was that part of some people being just racist. Then you've got a, probably the majority who didn't really think about it, so it was just like stuff happens. Yeah, stuff happens, and there's some similarities to what happens today. It's, I think today it's just more hidden, but people. So so the British government under Margaret Thatcher were actively supported the so it, do you know what I mean? that was yeah, the culture it's hard to imagine because even now no matter how bad people are a politician would not get up 
and say yeah, that's say okay, that even if they are racist. They they would not say it because it wouldn't be acceptable. But in those days, it was it people. Yeah, it was fine for government to say yeah, yeah. Mandela's a terrorist. So, so you, so you see, like um, how how he said that what made him like want to join the apartheid um, anti-apartheid movement when he was nineteen was because obviously how he just how personally how he felt about it. And having like friends affected by it, what what kind of made you like at twenty five, when you, at your young self, want to join the anti-apartheid movement? Um, so I hadn't been particularly aware. So when I was at school in this country, apartheid was going on. It wasn't discussed at school or anything like that. I was at that time. I went to school in Hammersmith. I was the only black girl in my year, so I was not. I was aware that there was racism but i wasn't particularly conscious as a young person mm-hmm. and i think young pe- young people today probably are more conscious than i was as a teenager then i went to nigeria and that was the first time that i really became aware how old were you at that time sorry i was 16 when i 16. went to nigeria okay. and i w- did my a levels as in nigeria and i went to university in nigeria and when when i was in university i met South African st- students my age who had been given refuge by the Nigerian government because they had been fleeing from um, um, Soweto, not wasn't Soweto, it was um, Sharpville, I think, at the time. But they had, they were students who had had to leave South Africa. They were 20 years old, whatever. They'd had to leave because they were, their lives were in danger. And so the Nigerian government, as and other African country governments as well, paid their fees, gave them money. to. So there was a lot of support from Africa. And that's partly because Nelson Mandela, before he got arrested and imprisoned, had gone all around Africa seeking support from different countries. He got a lot of support from the southern African countries, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Angola, and so on. But, um, but he also got a lot of support from Nigeria, Ghana, and so on. And so the Nigerian government paid for these students to be there. So that's when I first became aware of what was going on. When you were at uni? When I was at uni. And then when I came back to this country, when I was 21 or 22, no, yeah, about that, probably 22, I, like Suresh, I just thought, as a black person, I thought, how can you have somewhere in the world where they say, the law says, not just a few racist people, but the law says you are inferior. And so I, I feel, I felt I can't be free. I can never be free for as long as there's anywhere in the world where that is accepted and the British government think it's okay. How can I, I, can't, how can I hold my head up in the, in the street mm-hmm. where that's going on? So it was... So I felt I had to. I yeah. just had to join in. So I'd, 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 And I tried different organisations first before I came to the anti-apartheid movement. I want to ask your opinion on schools. Like you told me you were the only black girl in your school. And as that time went by, do you think schools were like... Do you feel like the apartheid movement is not taught as much as it should be in schools? Because the the hair test to me, my mouth dropped. How can someone... Yeah, I was um, never taught. I was never taught I that. Was ne- that's something co- I felt like I knew a lot about stuff like that, but that was completely foreign to me. The fact that someone could tell by the texture of your hair that you can't do a certain thing is crazy to me. And my hair's long as well, so I would have been a band from a lot of things. So, 
That's crazy. Like, even when my mum was young, my mum was born in the 70s. She went to school with a free Nelson Mandela flag. And I was in primary school, I think, at the time. And she was removed from the school because she was a terrorist. So do you, because her family was supporting a terrorist. So do you think that during the time that schools were like, do you think schools weren't being like on job, like on their ball with what's going on? Or do you think they purposely ignored what's going on? I think it's it's a good question. I think that individual teachers probably didn't purposefully ignore it, but I think the system purposefully ignored it. And it still does, in a way. Because if you think about what... So when people talk about decolonizing the curriculum today, what they're saying is, how can you have a whole education system where serious stuff has happened or is happening... And nobody talks about exactly. it. The fact that the British... Well, how can you teach British history and not teach the truth about colonialism and not teach the truth of, what, of the British responsibility for the murders and mil- of hundreds of thousands of people? How, how is that teaching history? And so that's part of some of what Caroline and everybody's trying to do is to say, we need to bring this stuff to schools and to young people so that people are aware because you can't really understand how things are today if you don't understand the truth, the whole truth, not part of the truth of what happened before. So I think it was, I think it is kind of deliberate, not not including that in history. You're so right about colonization because I spent like half, like my oh, my whole life, I've been in school in this country. Every year, I've learned history. I went to Nigeria as well when I was fourteen, and during that one year, I learned about all types of colonization, what countries went where. Why certain countries never went to certain countries? Like the only reason why the British never invaded Nigeria sooner because they didn't have a cure for malaria. If they had a cure for malaria, they would have been there in an instant. And this is not really taught in schools, so I think you're right. If you know more, transparency, yeah, it's important to have that in schools because because I think if you know more what happened in the past, we could understand more about what's going on and how we can move forward and why it's going on. Yeah. See, and that's part for me, part of the thing. That the, the question of, like I said, one of the important things to always ask is, why is this happening? And why did it happen? Exactly. And if you understand that, then you can start to understand why some of what happens today. Like, I myself didn't know until a few years ago that the British only just, the British government only stopped paying for the compensation to slave owners. How long ago was it? In 2015. Up until then, they were paying the families of slave owners from our tax money compensation for the loss of slaves. 2015. That's, that's, that's not that far. School. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's actually that's the exactly year, year that started that's secondary school. Secondary. You know, they were paying people for compensation. So that so if you start understanding these things and you then start knowing which fa- the families, the number of families who are all grand and everything today who's who benefited from slavery for example and similarly with South Africa so I think that the part of not telling the whole story is to conceive for those who are in power most ordinary teachers they're not taught it in teacher training college so it's not like they've chosen not to what to teach what to teach yeah exactly they've not chosen it it's it's the people who are in power really rather than the individual teachers that are to blame 100% yeah, you're right. But um, yeah, I, th- I think, I think, yeah, I, I th- you also got to look at it from the point of view of the colonized. I think that's part of decolonizing history, because history is taught from the point of view of the victors. I mean, of the, the from 
from the point of view of British people as if what they were doing was the right thing. So I, I come from India originally, my family's from India. And, um, you know, the, uh, in British history, you're taught about the Indian mutiny. Why is it a mutiny? It was against the colonizers. I mean, we should be calling it war of independence. Um, you know, so quite often. Um, so in this country, um, South Africa was important because of uh, also you've got to understand at the time of the um, the Cold War. Um, you know, uh, everyone in uh, or a lot of the governments in the West thought uh, that uh, if South Africa became independent, it would become a communist country. It would be under the uh, influence of uh, of uh, you know, uh, Soviet Union. Um, so what what people were doing was doing what was in their interest, in the interests of the West, not what is in the interests of the majority of people living in Africa, of the majority of people in this particular case of the people living in South Africa. Um, the government in this country and the United States was acting, as Leila has said, in order uh, to you know sustain its economy. They weren't thinking about what effect it was happening uh, on the majority of people in South Africa or the people in Africa. Um, yeah, so, so you want people, you want a workforce to go down the mines and get gold and get diamonds and get oil or whatever. And so, that, and you want to make money out of it. So therefore, it's fine as far as they're concerned. So, yeah. You <laughs> exploit know. them, you pay them, you pay them you pay as them little as you can get anything. away with. And... Like slavery. And the uh, and the companies based in London, Johannesburg, uh, dominated by white people, would make the profits. Mm. And that's how, you know, I mean, and that's 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 a, that's a recurring issue to this day exactly. as well. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, and that's partly why it's not helpful. Some some people don't want the stories to be told because they might suffer from it. Exactly. That if people realize the truth of what actually happens, then it's like when people in power. Yeah. Well, well, things won't be nice for them that we use. So, so part of the thing that the anti-apartheid movement did was we did use images and different techniques and everything to put pressure to get people on board. Because obviously, something like boycott, you, the, you have to get as many people as possible to boycott. Yeah, and and that's the only apartheid. To be fair, it wasn't just the British movement. There's anti-apartheid around the place, but also. Um, um, the South Africans, I think it's so important to remember how the black South Africans and fought for their freedom as well. So it wasn't that we rescued them, we were just supporting the fact that they were already exactly. But, but, but it was going to be difficult for them to win on their own because they were being shot and killed. Yes, yeah, sad. Yeah, I, I think that's so important. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, what, what Leila said there, to emphasise that it was the struggle within the country that eventually brought down uh, the apartheid regime. How did, the, like, how did apartheid actually end? How did it end? Because I'm... Did, well, I mean, they say, I mean, they say our role, I think it's important to understand that our role was to act in support of what was happening in South Africa. So, you know, we were what we were trying to do is to get the government and um, to impose sanctions on South Africa. Uh, we were trying to get 
uh, as a, we've already said, to undermine the economy. Um, so we had campaigns to boycott Barclays. Uh, we had campaigns to stop buying South African goods. Um, to, you know, we had uh, campaigns against Shell. We wanted the government to stop selling arms to the South African regime. That was very important. We wanted them to stop economic uh, uh, involvement with South Africa. Um, and, you know, so that, so what was happening within the country was very important. In the end, um, the pressure became so great that in 1990, um, the South African regime released Nelson Mandela from jail. He'd been in jail for 27 years. Um, and, um, and then they started negotiations. Um, and it wasn't a peaceful transition. And unfortunately, thousands of people died between 1990 and 1994 when the uh, democratic election took place. There was a struggle within the country. Between 1990, when Mandela was released, and 1994. So after he was released in 1990, they then carried on with negotiations about what the new South Africa would be like. And then they held the elections in, 19, in April 1994, where he was elected president of South Africa, the first ever black president of South Africa. And um, but as what Suresh is saying is that there was a lot of fighting and a lot of people died in, in between those four years. And so if you say when did apartheid officially end, I guess it officially ended in 1994 when Mandela was released. But 1990 was not the beginning of the end because it, it slowly started to be obvious that it had to end. This is not sustainable um, be, because of all the struggle and the fight and the, uh, against the system. And so... But and one of the things that happened is they offered Mandela to to like release him or whatever, and he said, "I'm not going to be released unless unless my people can be free." You know, yeah, that's that kind that kind you know. So so him and and his colleagues just in, stood up for like we we might as well die in jail rather than come out and then still have the same situation. Yeah, that man is incredible. How how did it feel, especially for you? Obviously, for Rosie, it was very for you to like be campaigning something for years, 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 and then finally see that like change actually happening. Like, how 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 was that feeling? Like, you just take me through that because because even to do, to do something for like twenty twenty two years, that's that's a lot of time and energy and and effort that you have to put into that. Even cause like even now, you see the um, coronavirus has only been here for a year, but that. <laughs> That feels like it's been. I can't remember life before that. So for me, imagine me trying to get, imagine me trying to get rid of something for twenty years. I would, I don't know how I would approach that. But then I just want to know that feeling of like how it felt. Like wow, the after all that hard work it paid off. You know, I, th I think you always have to have hope. You know, um, there were times when you know we weren't, we didn't think it was going to happen soon. You know, when I first joined in 1972, you know, the, well, the anti-apartheid movement had a membership of about 2,000 people. Um, and uh, the, um, and uh, throughout the seven, late 70s and early 80s, you didn't think, you know, that we would see it very, we, within our lifetimes even, you know, perhaps. 
but by the 1980s, I mean, you know, for example, I, I, I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. I was the national vice chair. Um, and in, um, in 1988, we had a concert at Wembley Stadium, uh, a massive concert, uh, which completely filled the stadium. 72,000 people were at the stadium and the, um, and the, um, the concert were broadcast across the world. And we, we think, you know, uh, four or five hundred million people saw the um, the broadcast, um, and it was the Free Mandela concert, and um, um, and I was very much involved in uh, organising that concert at Wembley Stadium. Um, but from then on, from about um, nineteen eight, late eighties onwards, you felt change was going to happen. You know, you couldn't tell exactly how long it was going to be. But for the years before that, it was very difficult. I mean, you know, we would, yeah. you know, organize um, vigils outside South Africa House. And sort of things that you've got to realize is that the South African regime were hanging people uh, for their resistance to apartheid. And, you know, freeing political prisoners and stopping the hangings was a central part of our campaigns. And we would stand outside South Africa House sometimes all night until we heard the news that the person had actually been uh, uh, reprieved or very often, very sadly, that uh, that he'd been hanged. Mm. And yeah. sometimes you, 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 you know, you, you, you fear despair. It was difficult. It, 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 I, I do but think you also had to have hope. You had to yeah. understand if you if you think you can, you know, uh, you know, if you think you're going to make change, you've got to have hope that you're going that what you do is going to change things. And eventually, we convinced more and more people. As I said, Wembley Stadium was full of you know people ch chanting Nelson Mandela's name. Yeah, well, it, three years later, earlier, most of those people hadn't even heard of Nelson Mandela. Exactly. I was just going to say that for me as well, that the thing about, it's a good question, because one of the lessons for me, the big lessons from the whole anti-apartheid movement, which I think is really important, is it's possible to win. And one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to tell the story, because you can look at the things that are and just think, what's the point? Nothing's ever going to change. It's always like this, blah, blah. But the, the keep going until you win, that you can win. I think that is one of the most important lessons. And and like Suresh, when I joined the anti-apartheid movement, even though I joined it relatively late, when there was a glimmer of hope, I didn't believe that apartheid would end in my lifetime. I thought Mandela would die in jail. <coughs> I thought apartheid wouldn't end. But I thought I'm going to do it anyway because it's not just about me and my lifetime. It's about the whole of history. And history is long. You know, <laughs> history yeah, it is long. 2021 so, so, years. So you do what you can towards... <laughs> that goal and if you die doing it somebody else hopefully you, you do enough to make other people come behind you and take up the struggle and for me that's the mindset you have to have you cannot have a mindset like a year covid one yeah. year done or we did <laughs> george, we did george floyd last year we did black lives matter last year okay now what next it's like you have to just focus on it and keep going with very specific tactics and if you get um, if people scupper you in one area, you think, what more? What different thing can we do now? You know, we did all kinds of things 
just to keep it going. But the other thing I would say that made it possible to keep going is the friendships and relationships yeah. that you develop with people of a like mind, people who believe the same thing and want the justice. So painful as it is, because every time people were killed, hanged, and so on, it was terrible, and it was painful, and it felt like a blow, and you felt like you're being defeated and you're not winning. Um, so, but you develop friendships, and those friendships, many of which are still here till today. So I met Suresh back in 1986, you know, yeah. and we're still friends to t today. So I think that the idea of, of I think you have to have enough food for your, it's like food for the soul or for the spirit. Yeah. You can't keep going on empty. You yeah. have to have something to keep you going and the relationships, the friendships, the joint. Momentum. And the, the thing, the nice thing about that is you, you can apply that to anything in life. Like absolutely anything that, that you might struggle with, you can apply that mindset to. And it's like, I think that's, I think especially Nelson Mandela, I think that's a prime example because it just doesn't, it just doesn't even seem realistic. That twenty to spend twenty. I, I, sometimes I can't. Oh, that's longer than I can't murderers. imagine that. Like twenty seven. That's yeah, that's crazy. longer than most murderers. Like twenty seven years to even to even still come out with like, with like your sanity. One that's that's very good because I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how 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 I would ever cope, and then to come out and then be president and change the world. And the thing I would. So I, I met him in when was it ninety six? I think it was, and so I met him when he came here, Mandela, and. The thing that I noticed about him is the hum humility. Yeah. And that's the other key learning for me. Don't get up your own ass, basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, with your own importance. When the second concert, after he'd been released, that, that we organised at Wembley, when he came on stage, people screamed. He couldn't speak for ages. People screamed and cheered and screamed and cheered. And that was, if you know, and yet he was so humble. He was never, ever had a sense of his own importance, you know. for tuning to one night real talk that was myself dj friend at so first you can catch us on instagram at one night real talk and we're out, out.